Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But you know what? We're here for two people today, so we're going to concentrate on them tonight. Uh, Steve Almond is the author of ten books of fiction and nonfiction, three of which he published himself. Yeah! Thank you. This Won't Take But a Minute, Honey, is composed of 30 brief stories and 30 brief essays on the psychology and practice of writing. Bad poetry and letters from people who hate me are exactly what they sound like. Uh, his stories have appeared in the Best American and Pushcart anthologies. In October, Lookout Press published his third story collection, God Bless America, which we have here tonight. Dan Byrne is the musician behind the albums Dan Byrne, Smarty Mine, Breathe, and many more. He contributed several songs to the Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story soundtrack, the Get Him to the Greek soundtrack, and other films. He has, devoted fo- he has a devoted following and is known for his live shows. Please visit danburn.com for discography, li- lyrics, tour info, and the opportunity now, this, this is true, that to commission a custom song or ringtone for people. Something like that. <laughs> it's true, folks. Check it out. So uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming uh, Steve Allman and Dan Byrne. Um, thank you guys for coming out and uh, I'm going to move this up because I assume we're both, I don't think I'm bragging, we're both kind of tall. Um, so uh, here's what we're going to do. The idea, I'm a little nervous for two reasons. One, because I just got this haircut and it's like, I feel like it's what happens when you go to Supercuts and say, just give me something like Hitler-ish. It's just, I just feel bad about it. I'm not happy with it. Um, but also because... Dan Byrne has been hmm, favorite songwriter for 20 years, maybe longer. I remember, when, when did Dog Boy Van come out? About 15. Okay, so about f- in 1915. Uh, this, this is, he's well preserved, ladies. Ni- 1997, all right. So, so let me amend that to say 15 years. I remember getting the EP, it was the first thing ever released, and I was working at a newspaper in Miami and hadn't even, I'd started writing fiction a little bit, and I was like, first off, this is the best music I've ever heard, but then second off, this, I'm wasting my time. I want to stop writing newspaper stories and start taking whatever he's taking. Um, and really basically got me into grad school and, and, uh, and, uh, got me writing stuff that had to do with what I was interested in rather than what the boss was interested in. So 
any rate, I'm, I'm honored to be able to read with him. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read some short selections and then the guys, he's here with his band Common Rotation. And the, in fact, their new album is passive aggressively not available to you, but I'm going to show it to you. It's called Drifter. It's also a cologne, interestingly. Um, and it's out. Uh, when is it out? Um, real darn soon. At some point soon, it's going to be out. <laughs> and they'll, uh, they'll, play a, they'll play a few songs from, from, or they'll play a song or two from Drifter and some other ones. All right, so I'm going to read, uh, the first thing I want to read is just like, just the very, very beginning of a story called Donkey Greedy, Donkey Gets Punched, which is in God Bless America. It's endless. We would be here all night if I tried to read all of it, and I would need poker cards and gra you know, uh, diagrams, so I'm not going to read all of it, but just a little bit of it. Okay. Dr. Raymond Oss had become, in the restless leisure of his late middle age, a poker player. He had a weakness for the game and the ruthless depressives it attracted, one of which he probably was, fair enough, though it wasn't something he wanted known. Oss was a psychoanalyst in private practice and the head of two committees at the San Francisco Institute. He was a short man with a meticulous Trotsky beard and a flair for hats that did not suit him. He cured souls very expensively from an office near his home in Los Altos. On Saturday mornings, Oss put on a sweatsuit and orthotic tennis shoes and told Sharon he was off to his Tai Chi class. Then he shot up 101 straight to Artichoke Joe's in San Bruno, where he played Texas Hold'em at the 3-6 table for five hours straight. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and this is completely up to you, and it's discretionary, but you're allowed to laugh. I'm not going to get mad. I might even be flattered. Okay. He mucked 80% of his hands, bluffed only on the button, and lost a little more than he won. He didn't mind losing either if the cards were to blame. It was only when he screwed up, when he failed to see a flush developing or got slow played by some grinning Chinese maniac, that he felt the pinch of genuine rage. And even these hands offered a certain masochistic pleasure, a mortification that was swift and public. It was an inconvenient arrangement, tawdry from certain angles, but Oz couldn't help himself. The moment he spotted the dismal pink stucco of the casino's facade, the sea of bent cigarettes rising from the giant ashtray under the awning, he felt a squirt of brainless adrenaline. He had become addicted to the garlic and ginger prawns, too, a dish so richly infiltrated with MSG that it made his tongue go numb. <laughs> Sometimes toward the end of a session, having made his third and final promise to cash in after the next hand, Oss would sit back and let the sensations wash over him, the clack of Guy tiles being stirred, the nimble flicking of the cards, the confusion of colognes and nicotine, the monstrous lonely twitch of the place. He loved Artichoke Joe's, especially while hating it. One day, Oss arrived home to find Sharon waiting in his den. She put on a green eye shade and pulled out a deck of cards and began dealing them onto his oriental rug. She'd done theater in college. <laughs> How long have you known, Oss said. Sharon frowned. Jacob, age 11, had tipped her off, the little shit. He hacked into your computer, Sharon said. I didn't hack into anything, Jacob yelled from the hallway. I just clicked the history tab for like one second. <laughs> I guess you have kids, so... Um, Sharon began speaking in her calm, social worker tone. Oss glanced at the scattered cards, a cluster of four hearts, queen high, and thought of his henpecked father. You could have told me, Sharon said. I would have understood. He didn't want his wife's understanding. 
He'd had enough of that already. He wanted her indignation, her censure, the stain of his moral insufficiencies tossed between them like a bet. But she saw his duplicity and raised her forgiveness. So he bid Artichoke Joe's farewell, farewell Greenfelt, farewell Ginger Prawns, and started playing in a weekly game with fellow analysts. The $20 buy-in, the non-alcoholic beer, the arthritic dithering over a 75-cent raise, it was his penance. <laughs> Overall, he felt himself vaguely improved. He began to hike the Stanford Hills and reread Dostoevsky and brought Sharon to the Swiss Alps for a month. His older son, Ike, insisted on calling him Cisco, it being his impression that the Cisco kid had been a famous gambler. Jacob continued to sneak into his office in the hopes of catching him playing online. Check it before you wreck it, daddy-o, he warned. Oss wanted very much to strike the boy, just once near the eye. <laughs> So, okay. All right. You can just save it up till the end. If, and then, all right. So, uh, so I'm, I'm going to end on, on that note and uh, bring up and out Dan Byrne in common rotation. Well, I hope people read that whole story because it's a great story and the, it's, it's one of those ones that, well, with all of your stuff, I pretty much remember it long afterwards. Um, but that one has like actual pictures of the hand that the guy has throughout the story, which is great. Hand drawn. Hand drawn. Uh, well, the drawing's not that great, but the... No. <laughs> well, this is kind of a gambling song. in A. What? This is G. That's G. No, that was my little intro. Well, I was writing a play about Pete Rose and Bart Giamatti. It takes place in a Motel 6 just outside of Cincinnati. There's a telephone, a bottle of whiskey, drinking but they light a cigarette first. Pete Rose looks terrible. Giamatti looks worse. Giamatti says, Pete, be straight with me. Have you been gambling on games? He says, Commissioner, where I come from, we bet on everything. Commissioner says, let's get to the point though, Pete. Did you ever bet on your own team? what Pete's gonna reply, but I think I'll have the telephone ring. Yeah, it's gonna be Shoeless Joe Jackson calling from Tangier. Says, Commissioner, if you don't throw him out, what have I been doing all these years? Bagging groceries and painting houses, having a bag and steal and rob. Pete tries to grab the receiver and says, I can tell you stuff about Todd Cobb. Well, then I Knocking, knocking at my door. It's my sweet baby, and I open up, and she crawls in on the floor. Says, Put down your paper and pen, boy. Or I can wait another day. I say, What's wrong? She grabs my pen, looks at me, and says, Are you gambling with my love? Are you saying you 
Congress Act. <laughs> we'll let it go there. That's, a, that's on a new baseball record we just made uh, called Doubleheader that we're going to debut uh, at Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame on July 4th. That's part of that. So, Mr. Uh, Steve Allman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, th that's what I was trying to talk about. I explained it badly, but listening to Dan's songs, like, oh, well, so you can actually, when you make art, it, sh it should just go where it goes. It's not guided by your conscious intention. In fact, your conscious intention sort of usually screws it up, is my experience. Uh, so I wanted to read just a paragraph. I was supposed to read two paragraphs, but uh, I copied the wrong paragraphs. Uh, but I just wanted to read a, sh a short paragraph, because uh, Dan and I are both sports fans, and I kind of, on behalf of all men, apologize for how sort of pointless that is, but we can't help ourselves. And I've thought a lot about why that is and, and sort of the wonders of boyhood and how we cling to them. And, and uh, I don't know what it is, but I'm writing this book in which I'm trying to figure it out. And what it was when he was sitting there watching these guys, it was some quality of attention. It goddamn mattered to them. It mattered to them more than anything in the world to win, to not be humiliated, their torsos colliding in a kind of bright funnel. Maybe there was something childish about the whole enterprise, but at least it was something real, not the endless bullshit of the non-sporting world, the tame digressions of the modern office, the non-stop ad campaign that passed for a, natural, a national culture, the way in which everything seemed like some clever, crappy imitation of something else. Sports was the opposite of all that, a pointless and blessed improvisation. people together about sports and uh, especially in a town like this by the way I, I love it when you write about sports I'm so glad that you're gonna write a, a longer thing yeah I also like when you write about traveling like Candy Freak the whole book is basically a, a travel log and in um, not that you asked when you're when you're traveling back across the country and you're in Indiana in that library and all that yeah, with my wife six months pregnant and totally fucking furious at me, I remember it. <laughs> do you think you'll ever write a, I mean, you do these book tours, it's part of your life. Yeah. Will you ever write about doing one? Well, it's so glamorous. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and you can the, make it sound glamorous, any, there, or not. The, there's the public to take care of, uh, you know, so it's all kind of a haze. There's a lot of drugs, obviously. Uh, actually, actually, sadly, true. There is a lot of drugs. Um, but, but they're like Advil. Yes. You know, that's, that's where I am now. Like a lot of painkillers. Eventually, that will work something. We got. Tonight I feel so far away, so far away from you What'd you do tonight? I'm driving my truck up and down the coast From north of Seattle to the Mexico line Right now I'm insane 
Bernardino to listen to Bill King calling the A's Oakland A's and this is the A's in the I mean they've always kind of sucked they had a few good years with Jose Canseco but they've kind of always sucked which is why I guess I love them because I always kind of suck but the, the, I remember listening to them and they would have like 2,000 fans 
I, 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 in the in the uh, in in the stadium. They would announce the attendance. There was like nobody there, but I used to just listen to them because that's what you do. And they had a great center fielder named Dwayne Murphy who could lay down a beautiful drag bunt, which is this amazing play where you bunt the ball between the first baseman and the pitcher, and you really have to angle it perfectly and be very fleet. And and when Dwayne Murphy would execute the perfect drag bunt, it was like. An angel just got a new halo or something. Anyway, um, all right. So, uh, so I have these little books that I've been making uh, because I need a day job, um, and uh, one of them is called "Letters from People Who Hate Me." It's self-explanatory, and so I just wanted to read one. Um, and you know, these guys will figure out what song makes the most sense to play in, in response to it. Um, let's see here. Okay, uh, this one's not too long, Steve. You are, and so these are all verbatim letters I receive for um, various, re you know, usually because I've written something political, uh, and so um, you don't need a whole lot of context. Steve, you are such a pussy. <laughs> and this is written by Brian Holmes. Is Brian any chance he's here? Brian, so uh, the point of the book is I answer all these letters. Brian, couple of things. <laughs> First, the word pussy is spelled P-U-S-S-Y, not P-U-S-S-I-E, which I think would lead most people to conclude that I suffer from an excess of pus. I do not. Nonetheless, I get your point. You're not saying that I'm literally a vagina. You're saying that I'm a cowardly person. I'm not sure how the slang expression for female genitalia came to mean cowardly, but let's leave that aside for now. Here's the important thing. I am not a pussy or a coward. I'm a chicken shit. It's a big difference, Brian, and us chicken shits don't take kindly to being lumped together with all the pussies and cowards and wimps and wusses. Chicken shittery isn't just some fad for us, some trendy lifestyle decision. I am deeply committed to running away from any physical conflict while shrieking in a womanly manner. <laughs> it's in my blood. The truth is I come from a long line of chicken shits. My daddy was a chicken shit and my daddy's daddy and his daddy before him and so on that way back to the days of antiquity. In fact, according to family lore, one of our ancient forebears was a radical homeless pacifist who flounced around the Sea of Galilee saying chicken shit stuff like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You can just imagine. You can just imagine what happened to that fucking pussy. Yeah. One, uh, one quick thing. The only other thing you could do that would really fulfill your obligation as the audience tonight would be if there, if there are choruses that are simple enough to sing along to, then I, I simply insist that you sing along. Okay? Deal? Okay. Okay, good. Well, I was going to play this other song, which I probably, I guess we will, but you're... Or there's this. She said to write a song about fried chicken, fried chicken, fried chicken. She said to write a song about fried chicken. So here's a fried chicken song. It goes on like that anyway. There was that one. Or there's this one.
ancient king to I said, oh yes, very much. But I think my time is wrong. Focusing time is relative. Where did you misread my stuff? I said, do you really mean it? They said, we think we come here for or something, important phone call, so I can just imagine, how darned impatient, everybody must be getting, so I think it's time now, time to reveal myself, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, yeah, I think you heard me right. I'm gonna wait till next year. Build up the suspense a little, make it a really big surprise. But I could not resist. It's like when you got a really big secret, you're just bursting to tell someone. Sort of like that with this. But now that I'm told, I feel this great weight lifted. Dr. Nussbaum was right. So I always write uh, very depressing stories. I don't know if, yeah, they're depressing. Sometimes they're funny, but they're also depressing. And so I have like about maybe one story with a happy ending. And so then now, now I'm going to read you the happy ending story. No, no. Well, all right. Uh, at the end of the massage, the, I get masturbated. Okay, you're right. I gave it away. It's a happy ending. No, it's, you know what, if any of you are writers, just tell me what the entire story is about in the first sentence of your novel. Just do like Saul Bellow. I, I don't care. I, I don't care. I want to know what it's about. Tell me what the whole thing is about. If it's about I fell in love with a woman, and but she crushed my heart, and, and I thought I was going to die, but then I heard the music of Dan Byrne, and I was lifted from the grave. Then just tell me that in the first sentence. I'll read that whole fucking book, because you made me a promise that some good stuff's going to happen. So I don't want to guess. Don't make me guess. I just want to feel.
I want to buy the guy a drink who, in the dead of a scowling New York January, spots my great aunt Meta on 64th and Central Park West, staring doubtfully at the icy crosswalk, and who, this guy, some handsome young fellow on his way to a bar with friends to drink, turns back, races across the street, takes her arm in his, and escorts her to the other side, the two of them leaning in, walking slowly, not unhappily, somewhat sexily in the voluntary lingering of what youth knows of what it is to be old. And more so, after shepherding her under the awning of the restaurant where she will dine, he turns back in front of all his friends and says, can I have your number? <laughs> so that all Meta can do is smile and shyly demure in her humming Rhineland accent, an accent as rich as pot roast simmered for hours and delicate and beautiful. This moment, one for the ages, one to make us young again, all of us, and foolishly hopeful as in love. So Dan Byrne doesn't write love songs, just so you know. <laughs> no, they're all love songs. Let's see. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Um, sure. So this is from this crazy book that I think that we'll have some copies of all these little books. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> crazy book. Uh, it's a two-sided book, and it has all these short shorts. I don't know, for those of you who don't know the literary biz, uh, short shorts are a super shortcut to riches. Everybody wants to option them. It's like, I love it. It's the elevator pitch. Um, so I just figured, why not just print? It's almost like printing money, printing these books. Okay, um, let's see here. Uh, okay, uh, so this is sort of um, the news you can use portion of our, our little shindig. It's called, there's a piece called How You Know You're an Adult. So be useful. Suddenly, socks don't seem like a lousy gift at all. <laughs> A nice pair of socks, silk, or a cotton blend. And a subtle color, too, slate or ochre. Suddenly you see yourself in nice socks. You covet other men's socks. You walk around the city where you live coveting other men's socks. With their socks, your life might come together more convincingly. Figures of authority would be given pause. Women would associate you with words like sang-froid. Twenty years of waiting to use sang-froid, finally, finally. You're not obvious about this new, what to call it, interest. You don't linger around the dainty sock racks looking forlorn or urge your friends to go barefoot in your home. You drop hints, though. Keep up a healthy correspondence with the surviving grandparents. Make a point of thank you notes. You do these things. Exhibit a little grace. And just like that, your feet slip inside the fabric and you rise and walk like a grown-up. Oh. <laughs> right. It's kind of a song about growing up. Okay.
grew your hair as long as it could go Farm boys got down in the dirt and wrestled Yeah, crop dust flew as far as Ohio We got our records up at the hardware Spent every last dime on rock and roll But on the radio was Merlin Hank and Johnny Buck Owen, Jimmy Rogers and George Jones well, I grew up and I drifted from the Midwest Seen London, New York, and Montreal The music that I listened to had drum machines We rocked as they kicked down the Berlin Wall Though my young years sometimes felt like someone else's Every now and then I'd hear wafting low Merlin, Hank, and Johnny Buck Owens, Jimmy Rogers, and George Jones Silver Wings, I'm so lonesome I could cry Stuck in Folsom Prison without you I got a tiger by the tail tee for Texas Blue must be the color of the blue Kids, they all sing rock and roll But I make sure she hears Merlin, Hank, and Johnny Buck Owens, Jimmy Rogers, and George Jones Silver Wing, I'm so lonesome I could cry Stuck in Folsom Prison without you I got a tiger by the tail for Texas Blue be the color of the blue Dan, will you introduce the guys who are making this beautiful noise? This is uh, Mr. Uh, Trumpet Banjo Jordan Ketz. Woo! And on the 
Dobro tonight, this little wisp of a fella, <laughs> is Eric Cuffs. <laughs> and I'm not sure what you're doing here. He's walking off yeah, the street. Yeah, this is Adam Bush. Gosh, it'd be great if you uh, uh, made sure you found Drifter when it comes out. These guys are unbelievable. Um, and I have loved listening to Dan play whenever, in whatever configuration he's playing, but it's absolutely gorgeous to hear these guys harmonize, and the new record's amazing, and they have a live record. That's you guys in New York, the live in New York, that's just astonishing. And uh, my iTunes tells me that I'm playing it constantly. The number just keeps going up. All right, so, this is, uh, so that was this beautiful song that seemed to me like the exact way that you show your love for, I mean, I mean America does a, ton of stuff wrong, uh, a ton of stuff, but just as a people, we got great values, but we just have terrible follow through. Um, and, but our music is the best. Our music is the best because we're an immigrant culture and all the different kinds of music and instruments and song forms came over from Europe and came up from Latin America uh, and came over from Africa, not happily, uh, and, and they, they meet and collide and Delta Blues arises and Appalachian country music that's from, you know, the song forms of, and from Italy and Scotland and Ireland, whatever, you know this, and it all meets in figures like Elvis Presley, right, who is, is formative because it's everything, it's all of our different musical cultures and ethnic cultures and those ideas and how, how and feelings and how they're expressed in music colliding and Dan Byrne you know when his music a song like that you can really hear all these different traditions and so that's this beautiful thing that happens and I now have to take us to a really dark place I'm so sorry but I have to do it because it's apropos so I have this book Bad Poetry which is not bluffing at all and anybody who has this book it's like it's really their bad poems and I'm now going to prove it to you in a very painful way um, the point of the book is that you're always writing bad stuff. That's part of being an artist. You fail, and then you fail better. But there's all these failures to contend with. And most failed pieces of writing are really just something you weren't ready to write about. But it's interesting to look back at, you know, for me, failed poems or stories and say, oh, that's what I met was really too frightened to actually address. Um, and then there's poems like this, they're just so wildly racist and crazy in their appropriation of another culture that they are just awesomely awful. Um, this is called Hobo Chant, Lafayette, Louisiana, 1937. <laughs> Getting the feeling someone maxed out on the credit card of his talent? Okay. You have no idea how racist it's about to get up in here. Dem coals inside your chest. Yeah, it's like that. All the way through. I wrote this in my mid-30s. I love me. I'm not a racist. I am a racist. I don't want to be. It's the worst part of me, but I am a fucking racist. Dem coals inside your Dem coals is hot and white. I know. I know that sound. That sound is enveloping me. You gotta ch listen. You gotta change your mac and cheese. So that's not even. I don't know how we got to food, but we. 
Makachi is interestingly spelled M-A-C-K-A-C-H-E-E-S-E. -E -E. One word, just because that's how it's done down there in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, you got to change your mac and cheese if you want to be my wife. I didn't even know that was a question. <laughs> I didn't even know that was even on the menu of possibilities. Them fancy names for grief, Char. That's Cajun, duh. Don't come round here no more. No more. At least I resisted no mo, but barely. <laughs> Dem morning robes you won't wear, wait for it, won't fit in my shiffer robe. <laughs> and that's it. And I wrote it. <laughs> Me and the Aryan nation. Ready? <laughs> On behalf of all bad poets, I would like to formally accept the Nobel Prize for Literature. I do so with a sense of humility. Really, when you're writing this badly, it's almost religious. It's like God grabs you by the shoulders and says, listen up, Char. I realize you're an upper middle class Caucasian Jew from suburban North, Northern California with almost no concept of what true material deprivation might be like, but I want you to write as if you were a poverty-stricken Negro haunting the ravaged hobo camps of Louisiana during the depths of the Depression. <laughs> Don't worry about seeming like a racist idiot. I am God and I have chosen you. <laughs> Then I say, geez, God, are you sure? I haven't been writing poetry that long. I'm not even really sure what versification is, but God is so persistent. He just keeps saying, no, no, go for it, man. You're awesome. So I would like to place God right at the top of my thank you list. And I would like to thank Jesus Christ, too, for having such a cool dad and for not getting all jealous of me on account of all the attention God keeps lavishing on me. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Who else? Oh, Andre Vickers and Richie Glover and Tony Mouton and all the other big black kids who scared the piss out of me at Ventura Elementary School, where I first began to grow my massive man soul. I'd also like to fa thank Philip Larkin for writing They Feed, They Lion, which I read 197 times before writing my Nobel Prize winning poem, and from whom I stole the essential conceit along with my transcendent abuse of anaphora. Sadly, Levine, while he breached certain idiomatic levees, lacked the courage of a true minstrel. <laughs> I believe ushers would do best to distribute the Kleenex I thought to purchase with a portion of my proceeds from the Nobel Prize, which I just won. <laughs> the remainder will be devoted to an educational fund, the Mac-a-Cheese Shifferobe Legacy. <laughs> Legacy Project, which will fa fund more than a dozen partially disrobed PhD candidates as they study this poem in an effort to establish whether or not it marks the pinnacle of human artistic achievement. I can't wait to find out. <laughs> I realize how unnecessary this largesse seems to most of you and ask again humbly that you stop weeping. I am merely one bad poet, but I accept this award on behalf of all bad poets who's written some shitty poems. The rest of you are fucking liars. So you've been through adolescence. Your job in adolescence is to write some shitty poems. And listen to Metallica, but also the poems. Right. I am merely one bad poet, but I accept this award on behalf of all bad poets. We sworn enemies of the authentic. We fearless soldiers in the war on truth. We happily inebriated language pukers. Bottoms up, comrades. Dem drinks beyond me. Yeah.
This is sing along, right? Oh yeah. This is so you should. This this was sparked by his hobo poem. This is called Hobo. Uh, just before we launch into this uh, little uh, love song, uh, I just want to say it's really nice to play here. This has been pretty much my favorite bookstore ever since I moved to LA. Woo! I come in here wanting to get like you know the New York Review of Books or something, and then like I you know I'm like. <laughs> They have to mail me everything I so, um, And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really cool that I know you because, like, re when I found you, started reading your books, you know, and then I just, I was going like, as soon as one was, was done, you know, the wife would start it and I would grab another one. It's just like bang, bang, bang. And truly, uh, you know, I would have to go back to Fonte. When that, when that happened, the last time was just like you know every one. So I'm glad you're you're alive, <coughs> my friend, and still writing books. So just just write a lot of books, okay? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I feel like you all probably have read all of his books anyway, maybe, and I don't feel like I have to plug you at all. But it's like I just. It feels you know, good. Rock and Roll to Save Your Life, and Candy Freak, and BB Chow, and Heavy Metal, and, and you know, the, the yeah, those other ones. <laughs> anyway, here's Hobo. And after the first couple choruses, you should all be singing it. I grew to be a man 
So uh, I'm just going to read, uh, I think, one more thing, and then I'm going to ask uh, that, uh, that these guys play a few songs. And I don't know if they will uh, agree just if I want them to, so I would suggest that since we're pretty lucky, I usually have to pay 30 bucks to see Dan. No happy ending. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and I should say, like, it's very moving that he actually knows who I am because the circumstances, like, I've been listening to his music for years, but the circumstances in which we, I, I mean, essentially kind of stalked him and stalked him, like, into a bathroom before a gig. Could which, you read that? Could you read that part? Yeah, I should read that. Does, is rock and roll, where? Yeah, is it, okay, yeah, 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 great. Okay, that'll work. Yeah, so here are the circumstances under which I met Dan. There, it's, I just got to say, because I believe in telling you up front, it's romantic. <laughs> there's going to be some tears. I think fondly of this. Sometimes when I'm down, I think, well, but Steve Ullman wrote about me in the most flattering way in his book. I did. It's, and then he blurred my book. So it's really, it was like a 69 was what was happening, right? <laughs> Okay, if I can just be honest about it. Um, now, now, now here's going to be the part where I have trouble finding, and it's just sad what's happened to, ever since kids, I really have no, nothing's left. I can't remember words. I, do, I don't recognize anybody. I'm, I don't know where I am right now. Uh, all right, so this is just, uh, just a list of stupid things I've done. Are any of you guys overweening fans, like two into a band? Again, you don't fucking lie. You all are, and that's what's awesome about music. You're too into it. Uh, you need it to reach certain feelings that are inaccessible to you otherwise. Um, and it's also the first language, duh, before yammering with these abstract words. People were singing and beating on things. Um, Oh, so, so the third of many dumb things I did uh, was regaling Dan Byrne during his pre-show bowel movement. <laughs> That's the romance part. Let me start by noting my, that my admiration for Byrne dated back to an advanced copy of his 1996 EP, Dog Boy Van, and quickly blossomed into full-scale dementia. Byrne is best known these days as the guy who wrote the songs for the faux biopic Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, but back in the late 90s, he, there was a small but stubborn contingent of us who considered him the heir apparent to Dylan, an adenoidal Midwestern Jew who wrote brilliant, rambling folk songs. The day that Elvis died, it was like a mercy killing, he sang, and my chest went pitter-patter. I've now kind of figured out who Dan Byrne is. Dan Byrne is Dylan and Lenny Bruce, and they had very hot sex, and out came Dan Byrne, and I licked off all the placentia. All right. You know what? I don't think that's an ooh moment. I'm going there. Go there with me or leave. All right. I'd been waiting years to see Byrne in concert when he finally played a show in Cambridge. I showed up hours early and milled around the merch table. Ugh, just creepy me. Yuck. Um, I brought this, I, 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 brought, I bought his mimeograph book of poetry. I waited. He eventually appeared and was set upon by a pack of smitten college kids. I was by this time, I don't know, early 30s sad. There, uh, what is there to do around here, Byrne said. Someone mentioned candle pin bowling. He looked at the prettiest of the girls. She had short black hair and a generous bosom and said, what are you going to do? <laughs> I was in awe. This was like an era when I would show up in a bar and spot a woman I liked and just stare at her until security was summoned. That was how I was doing it. The girl blushed. They agreed to meet up later. I was mildly disgusted and deeply impressed. Then Dan excused himself and went into the bathroom. 
why did I follow him into that bathroom? I suppose because I do not have a generous bosom and was therefore assumed, assu and therefore assumed my only possible audience with Byrne would be an at-sync rendezvous during which I could ask him to sign his book. This would segue to a broader discussion of literature and art, one so enthralling that Byrne would insist we hang after the show to hell with getting blown by the black-haired chick on lane 12. He was in the stall. I had a brief Gary, uh, Larry Craigish notion. Remember Larry? <laughs> Thank you. I want to hire you and I want to take you and have you always. Um, <laughs> but remember Larry Craig, all these, God, all these Republicans who are gay and then, then they just have to be like, shit, I'm gay, but I can't admit it. Remember the wide stance and mwah. So Larry Craig was an Idaho senator and he was clearly, or the was clear that he was hitting on somebody in the stall next to him and then had to deny it and so forth. So that's the reference. I had a brief Larry Craigish notion I could sit down in the stall next to him. But it was one of the one of those giant handicap jobbers. <laughs> it was one of those giant handicap jobbers and I couldn't quite get myself there. I considered exiting the bathroom, but that struck me as a form of surrender. I was a fan, after all. I had pimped the man's work far and wide. Without dudes like me, there were no easy blowjobs. If you really, <laughs> if you, if you really thought about it, and I was really thinking about it there in the bathroom as only a drooling fanatic can, the guy owed me. <laughs> Byrne had been in the stall for a minute or two by now, so I said in a loud, nervous voice, the kind of voice you might use upon greeting someone at a crowded party, Hey, Dan Byrne! <laughs> there was a long silence. I guess it sort of goes without saying that I was not seeing things from Byrne's point of view. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? He said finally. I just wanted to say, you know, I love your music, man. <laughs> More silence. I'm a big fan, I added. Burns said, at most, if I didn't just make this up, thanks. Yeah, I've got all your records, all the way back to Dog Boy Van. I reviewed a couple of them for the Miami New Times, the Weekly Down in Miami. I was a music editor down there for a while, though like I'm a writer now, you know, like fiction, poetry, that kind of thing. Though I still do some editing on the side, just to pay the bills, whatever. Actually, we, you know, and we might know a few people in common. And then I began listing all the people that we did not know in common. <laughs> At a certain point, two guys walked into the bathroom. I was talking excitedly in the direction of a bathroom stall. They stared. Right, I said, okay, we could talk later on, I guess. So that's how I met Dan Byrne. Okay. All right, but then I get a request. Okay. All right. So this is, uh, so Dan has, is, is, yeah, there she is. Dan has a two-year-old. And so this is uh, uh, just a portion of an essay I wrote about. And it's also close to Father's Day, am I right? You guys owe me a gift, I think. Well, almost. So, so I wanted to read something that's kind of a, you know, some of a part of an essay about being a dad of a daughter, specifically. My daughter Josephine is at the bottom of the stairs calling out, calling out, Papa, Papa. My office is a converted attic, so it sounds like she's standing inside my ear, or perhaps that's just fatherhood. She begins rattling the gate, 
The gate, if properly assembled and installed, would not rattle. But my wife and I are writers. We haven't properly assembled or installed a single thing in our home ever. That our bodies were able to assemble and install a child remains an astonishment. Josie continues to rattle. Papa needs to work. My wife calls out half-heartedly. Papa, Josie shrieks. I want Papa to come down. Papa, Papa. I now make the mistake I so frequently make. I appear at the top of the stairs. My thinking is that I can reason with Josie this time. I can impress upon her that Papa is working on a book. A boring book, okay, but a book nonetheless. And that I've reached that crucial juncture where something potentially unboring finally happens. And so I need to concentrate. I need to bear down and enter my dark cave of revelation. And so I'm sorry, love. But no, Papa can't come downstairs right now and swing you by your toes while bellowing clearly racist samurai gibberish. <laughs> I look down. Here is where my plan falls apart, right at this point, where I look down and see Josie's face. And there's really no use in my describing her face, nor the ease with which it crushes my puny will. If you're not the father of a daughter, words won't even get you close. And if you are the father of a daughter, I'll leave you to envision your own daughter's face. And God bless you for that, brother. You already know how this story ends. Uh, let me read a couple more little sections here. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, we've just emerged from our nightly bath, and I put Jesus. We used to take baths together. Uh, we, just, we just emerged from a nightly bath and I put Josie on a changing table for our dry the princess ritual. She flips over and I pinch her tush until she gets the hiccups and agrees to be diapered. I stand her up to put on her footy pajamas and she leaps into my arms. I gently apply Vaseline to her nose and make farting noises on her belly. Then we make a bottle and I read her two stories and we do hugsies and kisses and I tuck her into bed and rub her back until she sighs. She is so your little girlfriend, my wife says, when I walk back into our room. Hell yeah, she is, I say. <laughs> because what's the point in denying anything? I've said from the beginning that I'm delighted to have a child who will eventually want to sleep with me and kill her mother. <laughs> Consider the alternative. Seriously, my wife says, it's like you're dating. We are dating, I say. What can I tell you? She's totally hot. She totally gets me. I thrive on the erotic confusion. <laughs> Josie's commandeered the, giant, uh, commandeered the giant cardboard box in which the Swedish eco-friendly diapers arrived. She's slowly destroying it from the inside out. I'm bored, as usual, and hoping to provoke this little scat routine we have. Josie, I say, are you a bucus manucus? No answer. Are you a tucus or maybe a Pukas. Josie's head pops up and she casts me a withering glance. I don't want Papa to speak. I want Papa to go away. <laughs> That's not very nice, I say. Josie's head sinks out of view. Go away, Papa, she whispers. Go into the kitchen. <laughs> Fine, I say. Fine, Papa's going to go away, but don't come running to Papa in two minutes when you want to be swung around because Papa might not have time for that, okay? Josie says nothing. I can hear her punching the boxes glued, uh, the boxes glued panels apart. Have you noticed that her daughter's kind of an asshole? I say to my wife later. <laughs> she's two, my wife observes. Wait until she's 16. She's going to crush you like a bug. <laughs> she is not, I say. Then I go into the bathroom and use some private time to collect myself. 
We're on the couch reading about Curious George and the bike he receives from the frankly creepy man in the yellow hat. It's just like, that's, something's not right there. And that's, that's not cool. Um, and a, on a lot of different levels. Uh, and we reach the part where George crashes the bike and mangles the front wheel and sits by the riverbank crying. And Josie says, as she always does, with a genuine pity that shocks me each time, oh, George is crying. She herself woke up this morning crying. When I went in to get her, I could feel immediately that she was feverish. Her diaper contained the sort of digestive horror that only a parent can face without gagging, all of which meant that she'd finally inevitably caught the stomach flu that I'd gotten and given my wife the week before, a flu we'd assumed was somehow related to the nasty cold we'd been trading for the month previous to that. Anyway, Joe had been dosed with medicine and cleaned up, and now we're trying to get her hydrated and distracted. George is crying, she says again, don't cry. She dabs at George's tears. When I was a baby, I used to cry, she announces, but now I'm a big girl. That's right, I say, you are a big girl. She pauses and lets out one of those sighs that I think arise in children from a particular effort of thought. I'm starting to grow up, Papa, she says suddenly. And there's a moment, a strange, thrilling, terrifying moment where the truth of this statement rears back and socks me in the heart. I'm sitting with my sick two-year-old daughter on my lap, staring at the blazing cuffs of her ears, feeling the weight of her, breathing in her hair, and it's all so fleeting. The chance to love her with such uncomplicated fervor, such uncensored declaration. This reaction is sappy and absurd, as are most of my reactions to the world, but the gravity of her statement makes me suspect that Josie has sni sniffed out the secret power of every childhood, which is that it ends little by little, that it's ending all the time, that each moment, whatever else it might contain in the way of joy and need and love, brings her a little closer to escape. So all right, she started her getaway. Soon I'll be seeing her off to school, and that started. Then summer camp, then I'll be greeting her prom date with a make-believe, just kidding, shotgun. <laughs> then she goes off to college and majors in something stupid, and I go bald and tell her she can move wherever she wants. The world is her oyster if she doesn't mind dynamiting, dynamiting her old man's heart. We're living in a lucky age, in a lucky precinct, so I won't need to worry about her being sold into servitude or forced into a joyless marriage. The big mistakes are hers to make. And if I'm doing a number on her as a father, as I no doubt am, via my indulgences, my impatience, the smallness of my self-regard, well then, she'll have to live with those. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing in this business, so far as I can tell. We're all just nervous suitors bowing before whichever princess is ours. We pledge our love in each little scene, then sweep them up and call it life. Josie won't remember one bit anyhow. The brain is forgiving like that. It keeps sniffing, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it keeps stuffing itself full of fresh disasters and wonders. It pops her up each morning and <coughs> tells her to call out, for her father, who appears drowsy with adoration. What next, her brain tells her to say, what next, Papa? Thanks. Um, you know, one of the cool things about, about this is like, you know, we sort of go back and forth and like, 
what he reads then triggers something and, and maybe the other way around. And, um, rather than sing a song like about about my, uh, my little girl there, uh, maybe we'll do a couple songs that I know she likes. Mm. This is a song I wrote with a homeless guy at the Mission downtown one time. Six in the morning in my room at the Cecil. Ninety-four fifty a week stretches me out a little. Six in the morning it was dope and magnum. Borrow me two bucks so I can get to work again. I'm having a party. She doesn't know all the dark stuff that's in that song. She's just, party! <laughs> um, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers named Armando Galarraga who pretty much threw a perfect game, which is really, really rare, except the umpire, Jim Joyce, kind of blew the call in the very last out, and then they looked at it, and every, you know, even he realized that, but in baseball, you can't go back. There's no instant replay. So. Um, you know, there's been other perfect games, but we kind of thought this was the one to immortalize in song. So it goes like this. Mm -hmm. 
Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga, perfect game. No! Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga, perfect game. No! 26 men up, 26 men down, Galarraga with the game of his career. The 27th? Yes! But Joycey blew the call, now go and drown your sorrows for a year, for ten years. Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga, perfect game. No! Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga, your part! Joyce and Galarraga, perfect game. No! The umpire saw the tape, saw what he had done. He broke down and he cried, said, I'm to blame. Just kill me. Pitcher said, forget it, and gave the ump a hug. It's just my one and only perfect game. Just my one and only perfect game. Let's do it. Go! Again, No! This should have been history.
I think if we make enough noise, they'll play one more song. Will you guys play one more? Dan, you guys either play another song or I'm going to wait outside the bathroom and talk to you through the door. I don't know. Anybody want to hear one? Yeah. What? All right, then. He won. He won. He won. Pumpkins, yes sir, yes sir, and I'm a really good days. They swell to the size of small dogs. My balls are as big as small dogs. Well, it ain't bragging if it's true. Yes sir, yes sir, it ain't bragging if it's true. Muhammad Ali said that back when he was Cassius Clay, before he fought too many fights, left his brain inside the ring. And sometimes I wish I was Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. Sometimes I wish I was Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. Was to one day go down on Madonna That's all he wanted, that was all To one day go down on Madonna And when my friend was 34 He got his wish in Rome one night He got to go down on Madonna In Rome one night in some hotel And ever since he's been depressed Cause life is shit from here on in And all our friends just shake their heads Say too soon, too soon, too soon He went down on Madonna too soon Too young, too soon, man it ain't bragging if it's true Yes sir, yes sir It ain't bragging if it's true Muhammad Ali said that 
Back when he was Cassius Clay Before he fought too many fights And left his brain inside the ring And sometimes I wish I was Tiger Woods Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods Sometimes I wish I was Tiger Woods Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods Don't look at you, it means that they like you a lot. If other girls don't look at you, it just means they're ignoring you. How can you know? How can you know which is which who's doing what? I guess that you can ask them, which one are you, baby? Do you like me or are you ignoring me? Do you like me or are you ignoring me? Do you like me or are you ignoring me? And all you need to do that is one good pair of big balls. Balls as big as grapefruit, balls as big as pumpkins, balls as big as mine. But even though my balls are big, sometimes I wish they were bigger, even bigger. Big as wheels on tractors, big as a golden arches, big as a golden gate bridge, big as California, big as Mars and Jupiter, big as a swing of Tiger Woods, 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 Tiger Woods. So uh, uh, it would be uh, just fantastic if you, uh, if you're already a fan of Dan Byrne, then you can make the promise and pass through the crowd and just get this music. It will make your life 33% happier. I guarantee it. Uh, the new album, uh, Drifter, which is coming out in a few somethings, uh, but also any of his old records, they are guaranteed pleasure. Yep, alive in Los Angeles, for instance, just as a for instance, this has the golden voice of Vin Scully, Osama in Obama land, Albuquerque lullaby, to the fifth beat, just all the classics. Anyway, <laughs> grab a copy of that and find his music and his book as well. He has, and I know this because my children uh, read this book incessantly, and it's actually almost annoying, uh, but it's it, uh, called Cleaver the Gronk, okay? And... Oh, and yeah, and this fucking thing, too. Um, <laughs> so stick around, hang out, uh, come thank the band for being here, and thank you guys for coming out and listening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.